listening to the Duncan Tree Foundation podcast series on wellness, where in each episode we discuss the four pillars established by Duncan Tree. The pillars are emotional, spiritual, physical, and financial wellness. Like you, we don't have it all figured out. We do, however, have a diverse background and lots of resources to share. Together, we can heal ourselves and each other. Episode 6 is titled, Watch Your Mind, Signs and Symptoms of Suicide. Today's guest is Dr. Otis McKenzie, who has a PhD in psychology, and our host and founder of Duncan Tree Foundation, Weta Duncan. Welcome, everyone, to Duncan Tree's podcast. We are so delighted tonight to have the illustrious Dr. Otis McKenzie join us. He is a psychologist based out of Virginia, and I'm going to read his bio. So Dr. McKenzie is a person-centered clinical generalist. He helps his clients through their various life transitions, including career change, grief and loss, premarital and couples divorce and relationship transitions to include partner betrayal, family of origin issues, veteran regeneration to civilian life, free deployment and post-deployment transitions, pursuit of life purpose and Christian counseling, trauma, sex addictions and sexualized trauma, healthy sexuality, anger management, substance abuse, dual diagnosis, parenting skills and family and team building, not to mention domestic violence for those of you out there who are going through it now or have gone through it in the past, domestic violence transition, forensic work with courts, divorce meditation, I'm sorry, mediation, clinical supervision, employee assistant program counseling, and critical incident stress debriefings. Phew. And that's just some of what he does. (laughs) So welcome, Dr. McKenzie. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Hope everybody's doing well. And thank you, Rita, for the opportunity to uh, share a podcast with you. Well, you know what? I'm very honored and um, I'm so delighted that you said yes. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So now we're going to get into the questions. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you tonight was, you know, in reading the news broadcasts over the last couple of weeks, we're noticing there's an uptick in the number of suicides, especially by high profile people mm-hmm. who happen to be of African-American descent, including Regina King's son, Ian Alexander Jr. and Chelsea Crist, a tragic death. And these are reminders of the deceptive face of suicide. So when you heard those, when you heard the headlines, what went through your mind based on what you do for a living? Well, it's sad that it took such high profile uh, people um, that committed suicide that ended their lives to get people of color's attention to the problems with suicidality in our communities. Um, It shouldn't have to take some high visibility uh, person for us to have an awareness of the importance of the impact of suicide in our communities. That's kind of what stood out to me. Hmm. Now, Based on what you know about the statistics around suicide, because, mm-hmm. you know, as I was reading some of the stats mm-hmm. in terms of people of European descent, 
tend to yeah. outnumber those of African-American descent. True. Um, what are you noticing in terms of the reasons behind the uptick lately? Well, certainly COVID did not help the suicide rates, particularly amongst people of color. I think if anything, it exacerbated that. So if you, you're losing jobs, you can't get to work, you don't have childcare, uh, you've got domestic violence issues, you've got isolation, you've got family problems, you've got alcoholism, you've got drug abuse, you've got domestic violence uh, in our communities and within our family structure, uh, relational issues, homicide, the whole nine. Um, it doesn't surprise me that during COVID with the isolation, kids being home, um, no school, our life dramatically and drastically changed doing this once in a century event. Um, definitely raised the rates uh, or contributing factors to uh, increase suicide rates. So what I'm hearing you say, Dr. McKenzie, is that with the increase of outside pressure, yes, people tend to get overwhelmed and some people might not know how to deal with the additional pressure. And so they look for a way out. Yeah. So once in a lifetime events like COVID can take an already exacerbated situation and take it over the edge. So for example, people just say, you know what, I'm done. And in the black community, that rarely happens. The suicide rate amongst blacks is very, very low when compared to uh, Native American and white people. Um, but we've seen an uptick of three, four uh, percent amongst uh, black folk during COVID, which is a stark reminder of the need for us to pay attention to what's going on in our mental, within our mental health uh, and our families, in our communities. Something that you said, and you, you said it a couple of times so far tonight, you said, this, you know, once in a century event. Yes. And with COVID causing a sense of isolation, you know, it just occurred to me that as a community, we tend to rely on our faith yes. to get us through difficult times. And with so many churches having to either shutter their doors permanently or transition to, to an online uh, platform. Yes. Now it's, it created an environment where people are feeling even more isolated than before because they don't have that outlet. Absolutely. And unfortunately the churches do not do a good job of outreach with respect to suicide. Um, the trainings, having awareness of what's going on, uh, having trainings with respect to uh, what to look for with suicide. So they, they just don't, they, they, they just don't do a good job of that. Now it's not that when Jesus was roaming the earth, he would have been very sensitive to it and would have exposed it. It is a, it is a spirit and it is a demonic spirit that just gets a hold of people. And, you know, as the enemy continues to push people to the edge and push them to the edge and push them to the edge and convince them that there is no hope. This is the only way out. Just do it. Just end it. You'll feel better on the other side, which couldn't be any further from the truth. Are you out of your misery? Sure. But there ain't no coming back from death. I mean, there's been a few examples, a few uh, uh, instances in life where people have had death to life experiences, 
but they're even. You know, as you were talking about the, this being a spirit that comes on people and yeah. that Jesus would have been sensitive to it and that the church doesn't do a great job of outreach, you know, I can give a personal testimony to that in terms of my feelings, levels of stress and so on. And we'll go into it a little bit more um, later in, in our conversation. But, you know, what, what I want to touch on right now is the family of origin issues that stands yes. out for me in, in your profile. Can yeah. you talk to us more about that and then how that relates, potentially relate to suicidal thoughts? So genes never lie. We are a product of our genes. Genes um, if you if you know the scripture talks about generational curses passed down through the bloodline, the bloodline is directly connected to the genetics. And so each generation passes down those generational curses. Um, and most families, unfortunately, don't talk about generational curses and uh, those things that are passed down through the bloodline. So, for example, if there's a history of suicide in the bloodline. We have to have an awareness of that in our families to have that discussion, to talk about causality uh, in relatives who have had suicide attempts or who were uh, who were successful at committing suicide. But there's just not enough conversation around that. You know, domestic violence, uh, homicidality, um, uh, you know, uh, incarceration. Uh, drug use, addictions, uh, you know, bipolarity and other mental health uh, uh, ailments that are passed down through the bloodline. Incest, something that's huge that causes, uh, you know, sexual trauma, trauma uh, of any type. Um, these are things that are passed down through the bloodline. You know, uh, we look at uh, infidelity, you know, uh, those are things that if you track the family of origin, like on my father's side, all my father's brothers and, and uncles and, and my uncles were all adulterers. My father was an adulterer. All that passed down through his brothers, through my male cousins and all of that. It got on me, but the thing that saved me was my relationship with the Lord and being raised in the church. Hallelujah. That kept me from the full realization of infidelity in my life. And so, again, I had no awareness of that until I be, went through my divorce and I began talking to my family, my mom, and, and connecting the dots, a little bit of a conversation with my dad, but he didn't have much to add to that picture, you know. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it takes conversation. Uh, within families to have the discussions, not after an event or an incident or something traumatic has happened. It's, mm. it, I mean, those are obviously necessary times to have discussion, but what if we were proactive about it? You know, what if we were proactive about uh, Ian Alexander's situation? Uh, what if we were proactive about um, Chelsea Crist situation? What if we had those conversations early on in their lives? Could that have made a difference? Would they still be here? Had they had the knowledge of family of origin stuff, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, and other mental health issues, maladies, and so forth. If there had been proper psychoeducation, 
could there have been a difference in uh, proactive treatment for both of them? You bring up such a powerful point because I, I label this topic, watch your mind, the signs and signals of suicidal thoughts. Absolutely. And as, as a people, historically, we are known <laughs> for not talking about our history. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And I remember, you know, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I knew that my grandparents were never married mm. <laughs> on my father's side. And then I found out later the same thing on my mother's side. And yeah. there's so many things that have happened generationally mm. that, you know, let me ask you, let me ask you it this way. Could it be that as a people, we were, we were so focused on surviving that we, we didn't have the language to be and, and, and the awareness to be able to step back for a moment and reflect so that we can understand the importance of communicating our history with the next generation? Oh, absolutely. I think that if you look back at slavery, uh, and the horrific incidences of just trauma and rape and abuse and um, I'll call abuse and the like. Um, we were just trying to survive at the hands of slave masters and so forth. And so when is there going to be enough time to really sit down when you're trying to survive uh, to have those types of discussions? Now, if you uh, go back to, for example, uh, Greenwood, in the 20s and 30s in Oklahoma, when times were decent uh, for, for black folk. And we were building our own uh, existence in Oklahoma, you know, apart from mainstream Tulsa and so forth. And we didn't take the opportunities then to have those types of conversations. They were limited. There may have been some, but they were few and far between. And the question is, were they documented? When I was at the uh, Reginald Lewis uh, Museum in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, I walked through all of the exhibits, um, I didn't see a lot about mental health at all of the exhibits that I visited. Didn't see a whole lot about mental health at all. Hmm. And so these are the things that help us as a people to understand the struggles that we endure. So for example, slavery, I mean, look at the trauma there, look at the post-traumatic stress there, look at the traumatic brain injury suffered from getting hit over the head with all kinds of, of, of instruments used by the slave master or, or by our own people. Look at what happens even today with gangs living in, you know, just, poor, dilapidated neighborhoods uh, and, you know, gun violence, you know, ghost guns now available everywhere in school, you know, kids carrying ghost guns and knives and stuff uh, in the school, taking it out, uh, you know, looking at uh, shooting one another uh, and violence uh, to resolve problems. Um, it, it's systemic now. It's, it's just really, really sad. I, I hear of efforts to stem the tide of some of this. But I think the mental health community at large has been, I'm not gonna say silent, but not proactive in terms of pushing this more and more. Now, when you look at 
the 350,000 plus clinicians across the country and the various associations and affiliations for clinicians, there aren't but maybe 8% black folk. And of that, maybe 1% black male clinicians. So there's just not a lot of us getting into the business because we, uh, uh, as, a, as a community, as a people of color, uh, stigmatized, are stigmatized by mental health stuff. Look how long it took to talk about AIDS. Right, right. Even in the church. Right. Oh, well, well, we don't want to talk about that. And you got folk that, that are going through that, that are playing in, in, in the praise and worship team. Musicians, preachers. There's a, there's a famous preacher who died some, some time ago, I think in Georgia, who had dalliances with men. And this was a prominent preacher, a powerful preacher. So there's all kinds of closeted issues that the enemy uses uh, to destroy us. You know, the scripture says what's done in the dark shall come to the light. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when, when we talk about the church, we talk about the statistics. I'm looking up the global statistics. Yeah. And it says that 800,000 people die from suicide every year. Yes. And this is, this is twice the number from hom as from homicide. And that's globally. Yes. In the United States alone, 13.42 out of 100,000 individuals, so roughly about 13,000 people, commit suicide every year in the United States. Mm. 132 suicides per day. Those numbers to me are staggering. They are, absolutely. Unbelievable. And when we go back to talking about the lack of proactivity amongst men the mental health community yeah. and, and couple that with the church, what advice would you give to those two communities? Well, you know, you and you and I had some discussions at previous times about um, education. So, for example, National Suicide uh, Foundation, where they offer trainings free, they will come to your uh, organizations, to your churches, and conduct these trainings or do Zoom trainings and so forth. There's a number of different organizations. There's one here in Washington. There's throughout the country that can proactively help to educate people, um, no matter what organization, about suicide, the, the signs of suicide and the like. Right. So a church ought to be a proactive place where you'd want to kick the devil out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's you know right. what I'm saying? I mean, the scripture says he comes not before the thief, comes not before the kill, still destroy. That's exactly right. You, you know what I'm saying? So we, so we have these tools, these free tools at our fingertips that we're not accessing yeah. because we're somehow we're wearing blinders and we're not seeing it. And then as you mentioned, the su suicide prevention training, I want to, I want to, I want to mention, and I'm going to mention this throughout our conversation, the national suicide prevention lifeline, yeah. which is 800-273-8255. Mm -hmm. That's 800-273-8255. 8255 and they are available 24 7. Yeah. They provide free and confidential support for people who are in distress and prevention and crisis resources for people or their loved ones. So if, whether it's you personally that are that are feeling distressed or if you have a loved one that's feeling distressed and I know we talked about this recently that we had a family member who reached out 
to my daughter Chanel. It happens to be her birthday today. Happy birthday, Chanel. Happy birthday, Chanel. <laughs> Nelly. Nelly, 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 we love you. We love you. Well, yeah, girl. <laughs> and so that family member reached out. Yeah. And she had had a breakup and the breakup was so devastating to her that she felt mm -hmm. that she wanted to take her life. Mm -hmm. And she realized after doing an assessment that she had a borderline personality disorder, mm -hmm. which will put her in, in that category of being more suicidal than the average person. Absolutely. So can we talk now about the signs and signals of suicide and what to look for and how do we know someone is really thinking about it versus not? Well, I mean, a lot of it is, is personality based. Obviously some people are very, very good at hiding uh, their suicidal ideation, for example. So you have suicidal ideation, which means you have thoughts about, you contemplate suicide, your thoughts about it or whatever have you. Typically, there's not a plan. So deeper, a deeper level of the suicidal ideation is now I'm, I'm, I'm developing a plan of how to end my life. So that voice or that contemplation grows steadily over a period of time. For example, if there you see relatives who may suffer from depression or increased anxiety or uh, traumatic events that uh, are unresolved, for example, haven't been processed. Um, if there is uh, deeper isolation, increased drug use, uh, substance abuse, and whatever have you. If you see them start to give away valuable things um, and to just kind of start removing themselves from uh, daily living, right? You, you kind of see them with a flat affect, just looking like there's a cloud hanging over them. Uh, increased sleep, uh, for example, where they just don't seem to get out of bed or whatever have you. Um, or woe is me kind of an attitude, you know. Um, these are just a few of the generic types of signs that are pause for question. Hey, you okay? What's, what's, you good? What's going on? Um, so, for example, if we look at Robin Williams, we know he struggled with depression. But who would have thought that he would would kill himself in his right. own house with his wife in, you know, a couple of rooms over? And he just walked in the room and it, it was a depressive episode. And it was one of those. It's a very quick type of movement. Just it, it's 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 boom. Done. And most people that want to commit suicide don't want nobody to know about it. And if they have a plan and that day arrives where whatever it is, some type of an event or whatever have you happens to be that straw that breaks the camel's back, they're going to do it. You know, most black folk ain't taking their lives with a gun. It's pills or in uh, Miss Chris' situation, she jumped off of a high-rise building. Unbelievable. Beautiful you know, black woman. You know, when I heard that story, initially it was um, a text message I got from my sister who's always watching the news and reporting back. And she said, oh, did you hear about what happened to the former Miss USA? And I said, no, I didn't hear. 
And then she told me, and then I, I went online and I, and I read, read the news and news recounts of it. And although she lived on a lower floor, she made up her mind that she was going to go as high as she possibly could yeah, because she wanted it to stick. Unbelievable. And, you know, mm. I, I wrote this poem called Spectacular Death, which was about, you know, yeah. police brutality and, and so on. And George Floyd was the main, main focus of my poem. And I saw her death as a spectacular death that she, you know, the whole world was going to hear about this. I mean, it's bad enough that she did it, but in, in the way that she did it, it was, this is my final act to draw attention to myself and my cry for help is so loud it, it's silently deafening which is an oxymoron isn't it yeah it is and and she had uh, what her mother termed as a high functioning depression that um chelsea basically kept to herself and it it just you know her mother said i have known i've never known a pain as deep as this i am forever changed today what our family and friends privately knew was the cause of death of my sweet baby girl Chelsea was confirmed. I mean, she, she just, she, she jumped off of a, of a, of a, of a high rise building. That that's, when has that ever happened for a woman of color? Right. Except during nine uh, 11 when people didn't have any well, other way yeah, out. I mean, we, we, you know what we I mean? understand that, but I mean, right. that's a, one of those extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. But this is a more normalized type of a situation where this young lady was struggling with, uh, with a high uh, level of depression, and most black folk ain't, ain't looking at the the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Mental Disorders, the DSM five, which is kind of like a bible for mental health professionals. Most black folk don't know nothing about that because they we we don't read on a general level like we should. We're not educating ourselves about things that are taking us out. Now, the enemy loves when we don't read. He loves when we don't educate ourselves. Scripture says my people perish for lack of knowledge. That's right. So what, what, what are we doing? We can't blame nobody else. And that's the thing, that whole victim mentality. Now, you had mentioned just now that typically our folks will take pills, Yeah, will do something else, but we usually don't use a gun. Right. Why, why do you think that is? Um, cause the only time we use a gun is when we're killing each other in the hood as it relates to gang violence or you stupid stuff, domestic violence, which went up in, inordinately during COVID. I, I was listening to the radio the other day where, uh, black women in, uh, in the Washington Metro region, domestic violence and deaths went up 20% amongst black women being killed by their partners just unbelievable and so we have certainly the stigma okay uh we have uh situational instances you know domestic violence different things of that nature all family of origin related right okay if we go back and peel back the layers of the onion it's there but ain't nobody doing that so then we look at these things and we we scratch our head and go what the heck's going on here well um, it's time to pay attention, people. It's time to wake up. It's time to, I always, I look at it like this. Uh, denial keeps you blocked and locked. Say that one more time. Denial keeps you blocked 
and locked. And we're not talking about the river in Egypt. And we ain't. We're talking about your soul. We're talking about your spirit. We're talking about your mind. Locked and blocked. So if you think denial is working for you, eh, guess it is. It's not happening. No. And so as you know, as we look at the signs and signals, you know, I'm I'm paying very close attention to what you're saying. If someone is unusually isolated, or let's say they have functioning depression and they 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 tend to keep to themselves anyway, but just watch out for the fact that they're even more withdrawn. And if they're starting to give away personal items, if they start to to say things that, you know, that spark your, you know, to grab your attention, like, you know, I was thinking about killing myself. Yeah. Now, I remember us talking about someone within your own practice that actually was successful in doing this. Do you want to share with our audience? Yeah. So there was a youngster that, uh, he was a sixth grader at a school that I worked for. I was a clinician on contract with a military school. And this youngster was a kind of a unique, kind of an aardvark kind of of personality. He played his instruments and he was very popular amongst the kids, especially the young girls. And uh, he, uh, I saw him one day, this was uh, December 7th of 2018, I believe it was. Yeah, 2018. I saw him on December 7th and he was just kind of came to the cafeteria. I was hanging out, greeting the kids, saying good morning. Hey, how you doing? He came through. He had his guitar with him. You know, he was doing his thing. Wave at him, say hello. He said hello. And he went on about his business and, and went to went to his classes. That afternoon, he went home and hung himself. Now, the prelude to that was that this kid for probably a good three to six weeks prior to him committing suicide had been talking about doing it on the school bus in class with his peers. He had been cutting, sitting next to his teacher in the cafeteria. Uh, People were asleep at the switch. Nobody was paying attention. His peers were, but the, 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 the problem with this youngster was that his parents had divorced. His mother left his father and married a woman. He, he struggled with that. And he was going to go live with his father during the Christmas holiday that year. He was two weeks shy of getting to his father's house in Georgia. And he committed suicide. Now, can you imagine? That's so devastating. Yeah, can you imagine being his father? Mm. He never had a chance to say goodbye. That, that thing bothered me for a number of years. It still, it, it still bothers me to this day. So, you know, having an opportunity to do a podcast like this, I dedicated to him. 12 years old. And even his own mother wasn't listening to him. He did it. He he, he took a belt, hung it over, I don't know, it was a light or, or shower or whatever. He hung himself in his own house. Stepmother came home and found him. But they weren't listening. And his father never had a chance just say goodbye to this kid. I, I can't even imagine, even th- almost three years later, almost, almost four years later, what this, what he, what he's going through. Unbelievable. Because that sudden type of death is devastating. Yeah, devastating. It, it, it leaves you 
breathless. It leaves you stunned. Yeah. And, and there's this emptiness there. It's like, it's almost like reaching for the ghost. It's like you're reaching Absolutely. for a puff of smoke. Absolutely. That, that you can never tactically hold in your hand ever yep. again. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like killing yourself without using any form of weaponry or whatever have you. A hole in your soul yeah. that only the grace of God can fill. And even then it's tough. So tonight we lift up a prayer for for his soul. Yes. And we pray tonight that his soul is is resting in peace in spite of the the torment he suffered before he took his own life. Yeah, that youngster, you know, sits with me in my daily practice. He sits with me. Um, I can see him as clear as day right now in my mind's eye. It's an amazing youngster. And we've seen a lot of youngsters, especially kids of color, over these past two years that committed suicide. Very rare. But when you get isolated at home, you're taking classes through Zoom, you don't have any social interaction with your peers, you got problems at home, that at least when you went to school, when you were in the bricks and mortar building, you had an opportunity to get away, be with your peers, have a, have food, get fed. And some of these kids, you know, when they got locked up at the house, they didn't have food. It just was exacerbated. So you, you're at home, you're, you don't have that socialization with your peers. If you are coming from a family of low means, um, you cannot, uh, you don't have food, whereas you can go to school and get fed, get your meals and whatever have you all kinds of domestic situations, and who does that stuff get taken out on? If not for the mother, it's going to be the kids. So you got child neglect, child abuse, child trauma. All that stuff translates through the bloodline right on up through um, their adult lives. So if you look at Chelsea's situation, she's been struggling with depression her entire life. Now, I guess the question I would have is she suffered in silence, but was there any type of family of origin dialogue or dissection as to the genetics of the depression? And what were the appropriate treatments that could have been started early on in her life? You see what I'm talking about? That, that's such a perfect question. And, and so let, let's just suppose for a moment yeah. that you were able to interact with her or someone like her. Yeah. And, and you were able to 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 be there as that that outlet for her, someone like her. What what types of conversations would you be having with her and her family? So you mean if I had an opportunity to know her? Yes, or someone um, like her. I would. So say for example, she came into my office one day, or you know, high profile person came into my office one day, and. They, hey, I'm suffering from depression, blah, blah, blah. I am a celebrity or a high-vis person, and I don't want people to know that I'm suffering. I'm like, well, um, let's have a talk. Let's kind of sit down. First of all, I would thank them for their courage to come in and face their stuff, to talk about it, because it takes a lot of courage to come in and deal with your stuff, particularly when you get into these high-profile types of positions because you want to kind of maintain, similar to what Chelsea did, uh, you don't want people to know. So people see the outer appearance and they think everything's hunky-dory. 
But the reality is, and, and a lot of people, to include Ian Alexander, uh, Regina King's son, um, they, they suffered. When you look at them, you're like, nah, they ain't got nothing going on. But I would address those issues, and I'd be like, okay, let's talk about what's going on with you. And I'd begin session by session to peel back the layers of the, the genetic onion, so to speak, and to begin to dissect. Where did the behavior come from? What is the root causality? What goes on? What has gone on in your family of origin? Have you talked about it? Have your parents talked about it? Have your grandparents talked about it? I would take them all the way back until we ascertain where that connection was and begin to move it forward from there. If that you makes know, sense. It, it makes perfect sense. And, and when I was growing up, I was, you know, grew up in a traditional Caribbean household, born in Jamaica. Yeah. My, you know, my, my parents migrated when, you know, bef before I was a teen. Mm -hmm. And so we, the children were left, you know, with a nanny and a maid. And that's how we functioned until mm. my, my mother could, could come and take us up to, to New York. Mm -hmm. But I remember distinctly not being allowed to express my emotions. Mm. I you know why? Tell me. Why were you not allowed to express your emotions? Were you told they were wrong? <laughs> I was told, we, we, we have to be upset for. We have to be angry about. What do you have to be sad about? You know, straighten up your face. Ah, so you were not allowed to have an awareness of your emotions. No. Wow. And do you know that that is not an unusual story? That happens to a whole lot of folk. Go ahead, talk about it. So, you know, I, I, I hear this all the time coming to my office. Well, I, I never learned about my emotions. I, I was told to suck it up. Be strong. Don't worry about it. No, you don't, you don't feel that way. You don't think that. You, you, they, they, kids were not allowed to think for themselves. They were given a script by their parents because they didn't want them to think outside the parental or the family box, the facade. And so they were crippled. They were uh, enslaved by these family narratives and scripts that were not their own. So they were not allowed to uh, explore their God-given gifts, talents, and abilities. Their emotions were not nurtured so that they would have an understanding of, okay, anger is a normal emotion. God gave us anger, okay? God gave us these emotions, right? That's where the soul is, okay? In the mind, the will, and the emotions, all of that's tacked into the soul. So if the family of origin um, script is to avoid the emotions, not talk about your emotions, uh, dismiss your emotions, your feelings, whatever have you, uh, to uh, not acknowledge them or to, to downplay them. Man, that's a crippling, that has a crippling impact all the way through the lifespan. And it's just sad. I see that in my office every day. You know, what's interesting about that summary that you're giving about not being able to tap into our emotions and recognize and understand the patterns of emotions and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. I'm reading uh, this book called What Happened to You? Mm -hmm. Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing by Dr. Bruce Perry. Mm. 
and Oprah Winfrey. And one of the things that Oprah talks about, and it's funny because we know her story, but she goes a lot deeper into her childhood in, in this narrative. And she talks about the level of trauma and abuse she suffered as a child and not being allowed to cry and, and her grandmother regularly thrashing her. In one instance, she talked about getting her, her finger somehow got into the, to where the water pitcher and that angered her grandmother to the point where she beat her mm. so bad that she drew blood. And it was a Sunday morning. She had to get ready for church and she's bleeding into the white dress and her grandmother is upset with her because she's bleeding on the dress. Mm. And, and so, and, and her grandmother's telling her, suck it up, suck it up, you know, mm. hush your, hush your mouth, stop crying. And, wow. and she talks about how her, she was not allowed to express herself fully. Therefore she became hypersensitive to the, to, to reading the room. And I think Will Smith talks about this in his book um, when he talks about the violence that he witnessed as a young person and he learned how to read the room. And, and that's what happened to me as a child. You know, one of my earliest memories is at three years old, hiding under the kitchen table with my little brother because my parents were literally having a drop, knock down, drag out fight mm. with all kinds of things flying in the air and just hovering under the table just to be safe from whatever was happening above us mm -hmm. and not, not, ha not being in touch with our feelings or not being, not being allowed to be in touch with our feelings. So what Oprah talks about is becoming a yes person and not being able to draw clear boundaries, saying yes to things that we would normally not say yes to because we were not given the permission to feel our feelings and to express our feelings and to say no. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a dangerous thing in our community, you know? So I wanna talk about, and I'm so glad that you shared that, you know, what, what advice you would give to someone like a Chelsea um, and someone like uh, Regina King's son that you would want to peel the, the layers back all the way back to as many generations as you could to identify the origin of that pain. So once you identify the origin of the pain, what's next? What, how do you deal with that? And how do you counsel them until the point where that they can learn the language and the behaviors to change or not change? So for example, with Chelsea, Chris, uh, her, her example, you know, her father was a Polish-American gentleman who was a bodybuilder. Her stepdad was a white gentleman who married her mother, April. So uh, certainly the starting place would be her mom's genes and then also to look at uh, what was going on in, in, in dad's genetic background, her biological dad's genetic background. Obviously, from the stepdad's standpoint, there was no genetic contribution uh, by him to Chelsea. So I would look at both of the both sides of that the bio parents heritage to ascertain where were the potential mental health issues and how they attributed to uh, what she experienced growing up. Okay, and also dealing with interracial parents and how they handle that is an important thing. You know, how did how did the parents address that? And does she feel settled 
when they're on skin? And how did she adapt and adjust to society? Uh, these are all very critical questions. You know, she was highly successful. Got a law degree from Wake Forest. She was working as a lawyer. I mean, this young lady had it going on. But you can't overachieve your genes. Say that one more time. You cannot overachieve your dreams. Okay. You, you can't. It doesn't matter how much you achieve. Emmy nominations, MBAs, uh, law degrees, uh, you know, uh, beauty pageant titles. None of that kept her from committing suicide. None of that. And for all the success she had, none of that kept her alive. Now, for, for those who are listening today, we want to, again, repeat the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number, which is 800-273-8255. And our guest tonight is Dr. Otis McKenzie. And Dr. Dr. McKenzie, yeah. um, I, know, I know that we're kind of in between and we're almost done with this part of the interview, but can you tell people how to reach you um, if they want to get in touch with you? So the best way to reach me is, is to go to my website, healingtouchcounseling.com. Healingtouchcounseling, all one word, dot com. Healingtouchcounseling.com. Thank you so much. This conversation is so rich, and I hope that we can have a series of these conversations because I think this topic, to your point, is so important, and it, it, it needs to reach our community, and it needs to go around the world mm. as, we're, as we're trying to save as many lives as possible. 800,000 people globally commit suicide, which is unacceptable. And as you are doing an amazing job of getting the word out through your organization, um, it is significant, the work that you're doing to educate folk, hitting on these pressing issues, especially within communities of color, to educate and to bring about a sense of awareness, a greater sense of awareness of these things that are impacting uh, our families, our communities. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going back to the conversation, early in the conversation, we were talking about visiting the Reginald F. Lewis Museum in Baltimore. Yes, yes. And as you know, his wife is a friend of mine, Lloyd, yep. Miss Lo Mrs. Lloyda Lewis. Yep. And she has been extremely generous with her time and her love. And Wonderful. I'm actually, I'm going to bring it to her attention um, because I think this is a really important topic. And one of the things I wanted to say, you know, so we, we had a ten our 10th anniversary event at, in her New York city um, penthouse. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, we had an event in March of that same year. So the, the anniversary event was in October and the, we had another event in March to kind of fundraise for an upcoming trip to the Philippines. And as you know, and for those who don't know, um, Lloyda is Filipina and her husband, Reginald Lewis was the first black billionaire uh, Absolutely. In, in the United States, Reginald I, F. Lewis. I got all his books. And, you know, we encourage you to read his books. Absolutely. 
Um, why should white guys have all, all of the, the fun, fun is one of, <laughs> no, is one of them. Right. That's right. Uh, no, and, that's right. And I remember being interviewed by the, by the Filipino media. And as I was being interviewed, I was reflecting on, you know, some of the young people who we've helped with the foundation work, which was kids with scoliosis mm-hmm. who couldn't afford the surgery. And quite a few of them, not a lot, a lot, but enough of them were at the point where they were contemplating taking their lives. Yeah. And so when I look at the intersection of the work that we've done in the medical space, mm-hmm. I always reflect on the reason I founded Duncan Tree to begin with, which was to bring complete healing to people. Absolutely. And Duncan Tree is about not only the body, but the the mind and the spirit. The, the spirit Absolutely. and and the finances. And Absolutely. when one of those things is out of balance, it takes everything out of balance. And then you also said something that really stood out for me. You said you can't out educate your genes. You can't yeah. outrun, you can't run away from your genes. You can't overachieve your genes. And remember this, without health, you ain't got no wealth. There you go. So for people like Robin Williams, yeah. For people like Lowell Hawthorne, Lowell Hawthorne yeah. was big in the Jamaican community. He was the founder of Golden Crust Bakery. Wow. Wow. And That's amazing. In On December 2nd, 2017, he pulls out a gun and he shoots himself to death. Oh, man. And so when you were talking about the gun, you know, most of us don't do that, but, you know, he was struggling with depression and mm. I, and I, from what I understand, cause I, I've met him a couple of times and, yeah. you know, spoke to his wife and I actually know the family that helped to bring him up and train him in terms of his, his skill. Yeah. And they, you know, they, the Caribbean, um, Caribbean food delight, they, they oh, basically yeah. helped bring him, bring him into this, into the space of bait, you know, patties. But, you know, anyway, he owed a debt he was in debt, and I think that helped to trigger him making a decision to, to take his life. So, you know, successful businessman, author, he was on Undercover Boss, he wrote a book, but he couldn't overachieve and, his... And something made him, this man was a successful businessman, and something made him one day pick up a gun and shoot himself. There was a debt. Now, man, there's a whole lot of rich stuff behind that. Okay. Talk about it. It ain't about the gun. It ain't about the way he took his life. It's about the debt. What else was behind that that caused that man to pick up a gun one day and say, all right, you know what? I'm out of here. There's some deep, rich uh, information. Uh, that needs to be processed in that. You know, one thing I love about mental health, uh, particularly as a clinician, is the investigative work of asking the questions, uh, being that uh, mental health detective. I call it emotional excavation. Let's, let's dig in and, and, and see what's going on around there. Let's crack that egg and see what's inside. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's the... the and I get to do that every day. And it's, it's, it's a passion that, you know, God has given me. Uh, because the only way to beat the enemy is you got to beat him at with the root cause. Right. 
You got to know his strategies. You got to expose him. Shine that light. Shine the light. Got to got to put the light on that fool because he don't understand nothing but the light of the word of God. You know, and he was dumb enough to get kicked out of heaven. So how dumb can you get? <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you got you got the greatest seed in the house, and you you going to rebel against God? How, would, how crazy is how that? How insane is that? I mean, it's almost like Putin doing that right now. Well, well, you know, I mean, come on, let's get real. You know, you know what I mean? You know and, what I mean? And as we talk about Putin tonight, let's pray for the people in Ukraine. Absolutely. I'm Absolutely. sending up my prayers for yes, them as Lord well. God. Yes, Lord God. Thank you. Lord. You know, I, 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 you know, your work is extremely important, and my prayer for you tonight, yeah, is to get to as many minds mm. as you possibly can. It's, it's, it's an urgent call. It's an urgent call to action to help people to watch their minds, and not uh, only to watch their minds. Yeah but also to watch their family of origin and to know their family of origin story. So I think if nothing else comes out of this interview tonight, and I see us hopefully doing more of these and, and getting the word out more, um, is for people to be proactive in going to ask the questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fact. Um, I, you know, the only dumb question is the one you don't ask. Well, <laughs> You know, I love saying that. That's one of my favorite sayings. Uh, you, you, there's no dumb question. Now, I, I have a couple more questions for you. On, because I, let me tell you now. Okay. Because there's so many that you've answered organically. So you've already covered so much, so much of the topics. I wanted to talk to you about the incidences of male versus female and why that is. Why, why are men more likely to commit suicide than women? Um, because men don't talk to anybody. Women have uh, a, a ready-made complement of friends and family that they can vibe with. Women talk. Men don't. You know, we want to be stoic and, you know, macho and all that. And, you know, we don't want to be perceived as weak. You know, a man is weak if he cries or if he expresses his emotions, yada, yada, yada. That's all a lie from the pits of hell. Men need, and, and, and a bigger issue is men don't trust one another. Well, you know, who we going to be talking to, especially in the church? In the church. Go, go ahead now. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love the church. I've been a part of church since I was eight years old. But we got to get real in the church because Jesus loved the devil sit on the front row every every Sunday. Every Sunday with his every best suit day, on. Got his suit on, look good. Shoes would, polished and everything. Shoes shine. You would never know it's the devil. They sitting there smiling and taking people to hell with him right there in the church. And so again, his idea is to avoid. Oh, that doesn't exist. There's no such animal as a devil. No. You 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 delude it. So these these types of things that we we the, the whole societal mantra of machismo or what it means to be a woman. The, the society has the, the cultural definitions of man and woman have devastated the genders in our culture. Unbelievable. To that point, Men and women have committed suicide just based on trying to meet the societal definition of what it means to be a man or a woman. So men 
who deal with depression or with trauma or with sexualized trauma or whatever have you, and I've seen a lot of that in my office, they, they, there's such shame and guilt associated with that, that they run and run and run and run until they can't run anymore and then they kill themselves. So for men, it's a matter of getting the gun the quickest way out. You know, and some people say that's that's a coward, a cowardly act. What would you say about that? Well, I mean, if you ain't walked a mile in their shoes, it's easy for you to be an armchair quarterback. Well. Okay. So, you know, we can all sit back and go, well, they, they, I don't know why they did that and all that. Well, were, were, were you there? Did you talk to them? Have you gotten to know what the deal was with, 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 with folk as opposed to judging? The scripture says, judge not, let you be judged. Okay. So again, I'm 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 wanting to know why. Why did you? What, what, what was going on with, with you? That you had to feel like you needed to end it all. I'm trying to understand. So if I understand, then I can help. Then I can uh, bring about the psychoeducation and begin the process of healing and recovery. So I'm hearing you say empathy is important. Compassion is important. Yes. I'm Both hearing you say to, to be proactive in reaching out, especially when you notice a pattern of withdrawal and, and you know, people cutting themselves and people giving personal items away. Absolutely. Or, and people saying that, you know, they want to take their lives and pay attention. And for those instances, especially for the young man who was your, your patient, yeah, yeah. you know, um, that people dropped the ball. They they didn't take him seriously because of his age. And they probably felt like, okay, well, kids are resilient. They'll bounce back. Right, but, right. But but don't let that don't let that fool you. Oh, absolutely. And this is and again, psychoeducation. Right. If there was a greater awareness within the mental health community, why right. do we wait till National Suicide Week and all that or National all that craziness. Mental Health Week to be talking about something that needs to be talked about every day all over the world? That's right. So we educate people so they have an awareness of it so that they can get the help that they need in advance. You see what I'm talking about? Right. We minimize the uh, uh, high-profile suicides, the Robin Williams, the Chelsea Chris, the, the Ian Alexanders, and on and on and on. And for those who are listening, the National Suicide Day is October 10th, but October is the 10th month into the year. So the, the 10th day of the 10th month, that's, that's, that's a lot of months that have gone by <laughs> where people are... Go ahead. And how many people did you say killed themselves each month? Was it 132? Was it, is that a daily or what was that a monthly or what was that? It was what was a, those stats you quoted? Yeah, it was 132 a day. Let me, uh -huh. let me go back to that. 132 yeah. a day. Okay. So let me get my calculator out, madam. That's 132 a day times 30. That equals 3,960 people committing suicide each month. So you got 3960 a month. That's 39,000 people that kill themselves by the time we reach October. How crazy is that? I mean, if you really want to break the numbers down, you know, numbers never lie unless you manipulate them, you know what I'm saying? That's right. So the 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 final question I have for you yes, is about is about DBT and other treatment options that that people can seek as they they become more aware of all the signs and symptoms of suicidal thoughts. So dialectical, there is no one size fits all strategy for dealing with mental health. I think it's a 
it's a case by case basis. It's a, what I look at when I tell my clients is you come in and let's find out what's going on with you. And then we'll look at what we need to do in terms of a treatment plan to provide that wraparound support for you. Now there's DBT is an amazing uh, uh, clinical treatment milieu for suicidality. You know, it, it helps to decrease anxiety and depressive symptoms. Um, it also helps you to process stress and to create a sense of, of, of greater uh, coping strategies and resources to help people deescalate their behaviors and to process their emotions much more efficiently. Um, it's not a, a, a treatment that I use a lot because I haven't really boned up on it, but it is something that I'm interested in doing more research on. A lot of what I do is cognitive behavioral, cognitive processing theory. There's a number of different strategies. You know, narrative uh, Narrative is a big part of the, of the therapeutic treatment milieu because you need to understand people's narrative history, the root causality, the family of origin stuff. As you dig into that, then the, the treatment mill using the theoretical premises follow and line up so that you know what they need based on the history to be able to then treat them effectively. What I love about your response, which I know is a very authentic response, is that it's not a one-size-fits-all no. treat, treatment option. No, ma'am, it is not. And, you know, people go, oh, yeah, well, you know, let's do CPT or CBT or blah, 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 blah. There's, <laughs> a lot of it is a combination of things depending on the course of treatment. Right. Sometimes one may may not work anymore during the course of treatment two, three months in, and you might discover there's another one that's much more effective. A lot of that is contingent upon what the client's needs are and adjusting and adapting accordingly. Right. So when you talk about being a person-centered clinical generalist, you yeah. are not kidding. No, ma'am. I, I eat, sleep, breathe, live that. Well, you know what? I am so looking forward to breaking bread with you and continuing continuing to have this discussion because for me personally, it's been an amazing gift. It has been an amazing blessing. And I hope everyone listening tonight really, you know, paid attention to all of the signs and symptoms, mm. paid attention to the family of origin conversation. Yeah, man. Paid attention to you cannot you cannot outperform yes. and, and out, out overachieve overachieve and get over credential and it doesn't matter how rich you are. Right. You can't run away from your genes. Can't so, run away from them, man. Yes. And for those who are joining in the in the middle of this podcast, the we want to once more mention the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 800 273 8255. They have all kinds of amazing resources and they are available 24-7. They're free, they're confidential, and they provide support for people in distress directly and their loved ones. And and one last thing too, uh, Weta uh, and I mentioned this, you know, previously, you and I's conversation. Ain't no shame in your game if you in pain to get help. Say that one more time. As Ain't close. no shame in your game if you're in pain to get help. Thank you, Dr. Otis McKenzie, Jr. Appreciate it. God bless you. All right, my dear. Bye now. Bye for now.